Good evening, everybody. Oh, man, you don't have any idea. I mean, you probably do have a huge idea what, how refreshing it is to get to be with people. Uh, man, I've been missing people so much. Uh, it's so awesome to get to be here with you guys. My name is Tim. I am our high school pastor here. Uh, Kelly and I have been uh, planning this with our teams. Our teams have done a ton of work to make this happen, and we could not be more thrilled that you are here tonight to join us. And so we are here at Unite. Unite is all about God's call for us to be united as the family of God. Right, this idea of, of unity, of coming together. But the fascinating thing is when we, when we look out at the world, right, when we look out at our world, is it unity that we see? Right? Is it unity that we see around us? Is it unity that we feel pull? It's all that we see ever. You don't have to go farther than to go on YouTube and look up a video about Star Wars and scroll down to the comments to see people wishing each other death because they do or don't like one specific movie or Jar Jar Binks or what have you. Or they thought someone's lightsaber should have been a different color. Who even knows? But it's not just there. That's like the tip of the iceberg, right? And out in our world, we're arguing about everything from politics to race to justice to gender to sex. We are arguing about all of it and Star Wars on top. All of those areas are places where we're coming apart at the seams. It feels like our, our culture is just at war with each other over everything. But what's fascinating is that's not new. I think for many of us it feels new. If anything, this year has put the brakes on so much for us that we're paying attention to this more than maybe ever before. But this isn't new to what it means to be human. If you look at the Bible from pretty much Genesis 3 to Revelation 19. In other words, from almost the very beginning to almost the very end, human beings are going at it. There is disunity, disharmony, death, anger, malice, all of these things pulling people apart. There are gaps between people everywhere we look. And so we, we want to talk about over these next four weeks, what does it look like for those gaps to be sealed? What does it look like to heal as humanity? How can we come together? If it's truly God's vision that we would be a people united under him, how does that actually happen? Because I know one thing, that, that to experience unity, for that bridge to be gapped between or for that gap to be bridged between me and the people around me, for that to, to heal, right? We can't do it on our own. I can't do it on our own. You can't do it on your own. And when we look around at all the solutions, they don't work. We need something more than a social media campaign. We need something more than governmental change or laws being different than they are. We need something more powerful than the human heart. We need the power of of Jesus. And so how do we know that Jesus has the power to bridge the gap between us and other people? The gap looks pretty big. When you look at some of the things that pe people are fighting about and how viciously they fight about things and how important they are to them as people, it looks impossible to bring those people together. And so how do we know that Jesus has the power to do that? And it's because he, he broke down a bigger barrier than the one that stands between me and people who actually thought The Last Jedi was a reasonable movie, right? He, he's broken down barriers bigger than the things that stand between all of us. Bar bigger, barriers bigger than some of the ones that went up between some of you and me, right, as I said that. Uh, he has broken that down. 
I think most of us who are here tonight are probably coming back to church for the first time in maybe 204 days, like we were talking about earlier. Many of us know the story of this book. We know the story that God is telling in his word, a story of a perfect creation that he puts humanity into to represent him. And then the story of a humanity who rebels, who chooses their own way instead of his way. Instead of representing him as good, they choose evil. They choose wrong. They choose selfishness. And the story of one promised to come and to heal that wound that sin had brought into creation. And we understand that Jesus is that promised one, that he has come to be the solution to the sin problem. And, I, and while I know that many of us have heard that story since we were young, have devoted our lives and our attention to all the things that come with believing that that's God's story for the world, I think most of us, we miss just how big the problem is that Jesus came to solve. If you have your Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at just one area in the Bible where it's described how serious this, this issue of sin is. How serious this is, that, that what stands between us and God, this gap between us and him. In verse 18, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, the wrath is not a very popular topic to talk about. The wrath of God sounds really scary, but it's not something opposite from his love. It's not the other side of the coin. It's not a tension that pulls at his, his desire to love the good that he's created. The wrath that he feels towards evil is exactly what we would want a loving God to feel, to see evil in the world and to know that it needs to be cut out. In the same way that a surgeon sometimes needs to cut something out of our body for us to be healthy, God needs to cut evil out of this world in order for it to match his good design. And so Paul is saying, hey, wrath is on its way because of the wickedness of people. In verse 19, he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so he says, hey, just look at the world around you. Listen to the birds. Look at the trees. Feel the cool breeze. Look at the clouds in the sky. Watch as the sun sets. God's power is evident in creation, and yet for so much of the human story, we've suppressed that truth. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And so this is just one small moment where the Bible goes into the gravity of sin, that sin is a big deal because sin, the wrong that we do, that we so often weigh by how many of my fellow human beings have I hurt, that the, the major issue isn't that we have hurt each other. 
It's the way that it's damaged is our relationship with God. See, we've been put here to reflect him, to reflect his goodness into this world, and yet we've chosen instead to do evil. And when we do that, we are misrepresenting his character. The way the passage talks about it is that we've exchanged his glory for things that are created, whether that's ourselves and our selfish desires or the things around us that we put up as that number one priority in our life over him. And what's happened is in that process, we've done damage to God's reputation, if you will, because we're supposed to be here representing him. And see, how bad an action is oftentimes has to do with how much damage it's done, right? And so my, my daughter has been going around the house decorating for Halloween um, by drawing on 20,000 Post-it notes and placing them all over our house. Like, this is like a couple bats and, like, maybe a ghost or a cloud. I think this one's a, a purple witch. I don't even know. Uh, this is, I think, more bats and stuff. And that, that one, I'm pretty sure, is maybe a pumpkin. I don't even know. And so these are all over my house. They're everywhere. If you were to walk into my house, grab three of them, crumple them up, throw them on the ground, stomp on them, no one would even notice. No tears would be shed because they are everywhere. They are plentiful. And the only one who maybe cares about them is my daughter, and there's no way that she can keep track. But if you were to walk into a museum where, say, the, the Mona Lisa was on display, right, that picture of the lady who looks like she's sort of kind of smiling, uh, and there's that famous painting, that priceless painting, and you were to go up there and throw paint on it or slash it or damage it in some way or take it and crumple it up and throw it over your shoulder, that would be massive. It would be all over the news. People would riot because this priceless piece of art had been destroyed. See, that how valuable the thing that you destroy is determines the impact that that destruction has. Now, our sin hasn't just damaged the people around us. When we do those small little things, it's damaging God's infinitely valuable character. And so because of that, there exists a massive gap between us and God. A, a massive, huge gap. Like, from jumping from that mountain all the way over to the other one that we can't see. Like, that huge of a gap. And what stands in between that gap is the, the righteous penalty that's due to us because of the damage that we've done, because of the hurt that we've caused. Sin separates us from God and creates this massive gap that makes unity with him impossible. And yet Jesus has overcome that. In Colossians, it talks about how by the power of the cross, Jesus took and destroyed all of the power of sin. That everything that you and I have done, he took on his shoulders and he blew it up. And now the gap between us and God, the massive, uncrossable gap, has been bridged by the power of Jesus. We know that the power needed to bring us together is found in Jesus because that power is what's been put on display on the cross. That power is what has brought us together with God. And it's that same power of the cross that's supposed to unite us together. And that same power that lives within us also reaches around to those who are in front of us, those who are behind us, and those who are around us. And it changes the kind of community that we experience. 
It changes the way we see one another, and it changes the way we love one another. Imagine. Imagine if you needed to describe the church and you never, ever been to one, but the only text source you had was the Bible. Like, you've never been to an evangelical American church, and your job was to describe church just using the pages in the Bible. What would you say? How would you describe those type of Jesus people? Some of the things that you might come up with are things like generous, big meals. They, they, they like to eat a lot. They, they considered each other's needs, and they didn't consider anything they had as their own. And nobody was without need. Everybody had what they need. They were loving one another sacrificially. They were forgiving one another. They were committed to one another. They were faithful, and they were united. Imagine if the 20th century church actually looked like that all the time. There'd be people busting down our gates to get in here to experience that type of community, that type of Jesus community, that kind of kingdom community. So there's a question I want to ask you, and you can go ahead and write this question down if you want. The question is, what exactly is the kingdom community that Christ has in mind for you? I'll repeat it again. What exactly is the kingdom community that Christ actually has in mind for you? What exactly would that kingdom community look like? Three things. Two of them we're going to talk about today. The next one we'll talk about next week. But I believe that the first kingdom community that God has for you in Christ is a woven community. You know, woven community? When you take two things and you put them together? See, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, that's where we're going tonight. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it's, it's actually the, the passage that we're going to go to for the first this night and also the next night, so y'all got some homework. We see how this kingdom community is being established, not just uh, today in 2020, but also 20, or 2020 years from now, it was being established. But perhaps it was even being established 2,000 years from that point, too. Because in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it accounts of one of the most important days of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's probably the second most significant thing that Jesus did on earth is happening in Luke chapter 6. Because the first most significant decision that Jesus made was deciding to go to the cross. But the second decision, it happens right here. It's his decision to choose who he's going to give the mission and vision to to carry out to the rest of the world. And so when, he ha when Jesus has a big decision to make, you know what he does? Well, it's right here. I'll tell you right now. One of those days, th those days he's talking about are those Jewish holidays. One of those days, Jesus went away from those Jew Jewish holidays, and he went up on a mountainside to pray. And when he spent the night praying to God, and when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them who he designated to be apostles, woven community. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's echoing what was done in Exodus when Moses went up, up to Mount Sinai and came down with the Ten Commandments to give to the 12 tribes. 
Because God was not trying to give these people another rule book to follow. He was trying to give them or prescribe to them what it looks like to be a woven community that will proclaim how different they are from the rest of the world, how different they were from the rest of the other gods, and how this community is going to transform all of humanity. But don't you think it's interesting? Amen. Don't you think it's interesting that in Exodus... God takes a people who were enslaved, who were in bondage, who were oppressed by the Egyptians, takes them out and frees them and liberates them, and then gives them a rule book? See, sometimes it's easy to look at these rules as another form of shackles, as another form of bondage. But again, what God was doing in Exodus was giving a prescription of what it looks like to be kingdom, to be a kingdom community that loves one another by loving God. And that's what Jesus does here. See, he comes down the mountainside after he's been praying, and he calls his 12 disciples, and then he gives him the Beatitudes. Not a prescription, but a description of what it looks like to live for the kingdom. He's weaving together the old, the new, the Jewish system, and the Gentile. He's weaving time and space together. See, to be saved by Jesus, to be saved by Jesus is not simply, or not simply, but just not only to be saved from your sins. It's not a get out of jail free card, it's not fire insurance. Get it? Hell? Anyways. Like, to be saved by Jesus is more than that. To be saved by Jesus is to be woven into a God, God-like community that's beautiful. Now, I've been using this word woven. Let me just tell you what I'm, I'm trying to say. See, your life is like a thread, right? It's fragile. I fell in the shower the other day, and I almost broke my rib. I mean, life is fragile. I'm like a thread by myself. However, but if God puts like-minded people in and around me, right, what, when, you, when you do that with a blanket or a collage, you actually get something very diverse and very beautiful and very strong. So far, so good? All right, so you guys get that. That's the first thing that Jesus wants to do with his community. The second thing that Jesus wants to do with his community is create a community of diversity. Create a community of diversity. Luke 6.14 actually tells us who's, who Jesus' best, closest friends that he chose to give the mission and vision to, to go out and transform the world. And one of them was a traitor, interesting enough. All right, verse 14. Simon. First of all, most of these guys that I'm going to tell you right now, <laughs> you're not going to know who these are. You may never know who these people are until you get to heaven. And then you're going to realize, wow, Bartholomew, I, Bart, I don't know what he goes by in heaven. Wow, Bart, you're awesome. Um, uh, but right now he's just kind of a guy on a, uh, on a page, but he's much more than that. So the first guy is Simon, who also named is Peter. His brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Mew, Mew. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the one who is also called Zealot, Judas, son of James, and, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, 
These are the people that Jesus wants to use as an example of a Christ-centered community. It's so weird. And, if, and, and I'm only going to take time right now, for the sake of time, to point out two people in this community. One guy's name is Matthew. The other guy's name is Simon. Matthew also has a second name. Do you guys know what his second name is? That's right, Levi. Good job. <laughs> the reason why Matthew has two names is because Matthew is his Roman name and Levi is his Hebrew name. And what happened was is that Levi decided to betray his nation and betray his family and to walk away from his culture and walk away from his God-given born ethnicity and become a Roman sympathizer. And he changed his name to Matthew so that he can fit in and become a Roman tax collector, taxing his people, oppressing his people, benefiting from the oppression of his people. He's considered a national traitor, economically untrustworthy, greedy, and at best a liberal when it comes to rules. The other guy is Simon. And he's a zealot. They make sure to let you know that he's a zealot. Anybody know what that means? I had to look it up too. See, zealot means for Simon is that he was a Roman hater. He would be the equivalent of Al-Qaeda, an Islamic extremist group, or he would be militant to his commitment to his nation. He was committed to his culture. He was committed to his ethnicity, and he was a conservative rule follower. And Jesus says, I want you on my team. And Jesus says to Levi, hey, I want you on my team too. Now you two wash each other's feet. But I'm not just going to let you do that. I'm going to do it for you first so I can show you how to love one another. Because I'm going to let you disagree ideologically, but I will not let you unlove each other. And, and I will love you until you love your enemies like yourself. I will love you until you make your ideological disagreements a far second to your commitment to love one another unconditionally. Because God's kingdom is a woven kingdom. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of diversity. It would be as if Jesus chose a white supremacist and an Antifa leader. Hey, you two love each other. And they do. It would have to take something dramatic to happen, though. Someone would have to die and rise from the dead in order for that to happen. Good thing Jesus did. And if they can, we, we will too. I want you to decide today that this is going to be a community of people who think and look and vote differently. That those ideolo ideologies are just going to be a far second cry to your commitment to love each other unconditionally. Can you just decide to make that your decision? Now, no matter what you, who you vote for or where you land on the spectrum ideologically, none of those will ever be a reason for you to unlove another person. Can you make that commitment?
Because if you do, this place will look a little bit more like the kingdom that God was trying to establish when he came down off the mountain. The third thing that Jesus wants in my, the third thing that Jesus wants to establish as his community is a community with a new constitution. And that constitution we will talk about next week. But it's found in Luke chapter 6. And it's important that you're in your word anyway. So how about you don't just show up here ready to be fed. How about you show up ready to wrestle with God's word with me next week? How about that? That you read Luke chapter 6 and maybe you even bust out a couple commentaries. Uh, David Guzik in the house. Right? Maybe you look up Blue Letter Bible or maybe you look up the Bible Project and you try to dig into Luke chapter 6 and find out what it means for yourself and you come back here and you wrestle with me and you try to point out, hey, Kelly, I think you might be wrong on this because the Hebrew says this. And I'll be like, you're probably right. Like, I want that. I want those conversations. I want you to show up ready to wrestle with God's word with me because we treat this place like a restaurant when we should be treating this like a gym. So the last part, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to preach on the Beatitudes yet, but I will t- next week. But I got to say something. I got to say something. It's, it's a bunch of blessings and a bunch of woes. You don't want a woe from Jesus. But it starts out, blessed are the poor. And you would think Jesus would say, blessed are those who are wealthy, healthy, and prosperous. But he does not. And we'll talk about why that is. But. One of the woes he gives, he says, woe to you who are laughing. I'm like, laughing? What does that mean? Is God mad at having fun? No. He's mad at those who act a certain way when they think they have won. See, Jesus' people are not happy when other people are hurting. That's called gloating. And Jesus says, woe. And in this particular climate that we're in right now, if you find yourself happy while someone is hurting, slow down. Whoa. Repent because you're living in sin. That's all I got to say about that. We got more next week. But what we're going to do right now is something that weaves us into a story. It weaves us into history with a community of people who were eating dinner 2,000 years ago in an upper room on the night where Jesus was betrayed by Judas and was sentenced to death on a cross unjustly. What we're going to do right now is going to require two physical actions, eating and drinking. But what we're doing is not just merely spiritual. It's historical. And it requires you to not turn off your mind, but to turn it on and remember. See, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This is my cup, 
in the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want to invite you to take your communion packets out right now. And do not take communion yet. I want you to pause because I want to tell you who this is not for. This is, this is not for people who are living in unrepentant sexual sin or otherwise. Right? These, this is for people who want to, to repent, who want to be cleansed, who have given their life to Jesus and who savor him as Lord and desire him above all things. This is not for people who have not submitted their life to Jesus as the Lord and leader of their life. However, maybe today could be that day where you choose to receive forgiveness and give your life over to Jesus to seek and savor him as Lord and leader of your life and your life decisions. Number three, this is not for those who are holding bitterness and resentment towards another person. Maybe you've never forgiven your dad. You've never forgiven your mom. You've never forgiven your aunt, uncle, or offender of whatever it was. But a kingdom community is heavenly-minded. It's an eternal community. And so whatever bitterness or resentment we're holding now, five billion years in eternity, it's not going to matter. So let's be kingdom-minded and release people from the responsibility of the pain that they've caused us today. And forgive them the way Christ has forgiven you and given himself for you. There's going to be a Bible verse. Yeah, it's, good job. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Bible verse is on the screen. And so, if any of those three things apply to you, here's the thing. All of us, it applies to lots of us in this area. Take a moment Repent, examine your heart, submit it to Jesus, and recognize that these are two symbols. The bread, his body broken for you. The juice, the blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness and sin. I'm going to let you have a moment. And when you're ready, you may be ready today. You may not be ready. That's okay. You don't have to take it right now. But keep that bread and cup just as a reminder. When, when you are ready to forgive, to renounce, to repent, that same Jesus that's here for me is here for you. Jesus, we invite you in the space and we choose to remember what happened 2,000 years ago when your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we can have eternal life. And as a result, we've been forgiven of all unrighteousness and we, and we recognize you as Lord and leader of our lives and we give you every single part of us. We give you the good times and we give you the bad times. We give you the future. We even give you our past. And we thank you and we ask that you lead us into all righteousness. But most importantly, you lead us into your presence. And we enjoy your presence today. In Jesus' name we all said.
Jesus has done the impossible. He's bridged the gap between you and I and God, between sinners like us and a perfect, holy, and loving God. Because of him, we get to experience God's love at every moment of our lives because he's taking care of what stood between us and him. But not only that, he's weaving us together into a community of tax collectors and zealots, into a community of people who look nothing alike, act nothing nothing alike, sound nothing alike, believe radically different things about the world. He is bringing us together because what he has done for us is greater than any difference that exists between us. And if that sounds like it's too difficult to achieve on your own, it's because it is. We can't do it on our own. But the first step is to remember that our job isn't to look out in the crowd at the other people and to think of ways that they're wrong and the things that they've done and the reasons that they need Jesus, but instead to remember that I need him. I need Jesus. And they might need him too. In fact, they surely do. But I know how much I need him. And so if unity is being woven together, it sounds like it would require a miracle. It's because it does. But that miracle has already taken place. So as the people of Jesus, we get to experience the benefit of that, to come together in unity, to love him. Because that world out there needs us to demonstrate the love of Jesus and how we treat each other, to know that there is hope, that disunity is not what we are doomed to, but there is hope for humanity found in the love of Jesus put on display by his people.